Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mr. Ayers, why did you decide to come to Washington on January 6th? For me, for me personally, you know, uh, I was, you know, pretty hardcore into the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I followed, you know, President Trump, you know, on all of the websites, you know. Um, he basically put out, you know, come to stop the steel rally. You know, and I felt like I needed to be down here. It's July 12th, 2022, the seventh hearing of the January 6th committee. A man named Stephen Ayers is testifying before the committee, talking about how he lost his job, sold his house, and pleaded guilty to criminal charges because of what he did on January 6th, 2021. Ayers says he used to just be a family man, and a working man. But as a result of Trump's tweets, he had come to believe the election had been stolen. Um, I had some friends I found out were coming down. I just hopped, you know, hopped on with them right at the tail end when I found out and came down here with them. Ayers had not come to Washington intending to storm the Capitol. He marched on it because that's what Trump urged the crowd to do in his speech on the Ellipse. And just as his role in the riot began with social media, it ended with a presidential tweet. When asked why he left the building, Ayers responds, Basically, when President Trump put his tweet out, we literally left right after that come out. All over the country, Trump supporters like Ayers rallied in response to Trump's tweet of December 19th, 2020, in which the then-president repeated the lie that he had won the election, and said, quote, Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. We'll be wild. Mobs and demagogues will put us on a path to political tyranny, Lincoln said. As we'll see today, this very old problem has returned with new ferocity today as a president who lost an election deployed a mob which included dangerous extremists to attack the constitutional system of election and the peaceful transfer of power. And as we'll see, the creation of the internet and social media has given today's tyrants tools of propaganda and disinformation that yesterday's despots could only have dreamed of. In countless sentencing hearings in federal court, defendants have said, as Ayers does, that they had acted at what they thought was the request of the President of the United States which in some sense, they had. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. 
And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. The riot led to Trump being banned from Facebook on January 7th and from Twitter on January 8th. Tonight, a deafening silence from the president's Twitter account in his waning days as commander in chief. Social media was key to January 6th, end to end. It was key to gathering the crowd that stormed the Capitol. It was key to generating the sentiment that led people to drop their lives to come to Washington willing to commit crimes. It was key to sending them home when the deed was done. Of course, we're all on social media. But how does social media propel people to action? even inspire them to move from online to on the ground and to the grounds of the Capitol. It's impossible to track. But we do know that some accounts wielded enormous influence, and none more so than Donald Trump. The thing is, Trump wasn't the only one behind his social media face. He had one trusted aide who ran the accounts with him. That aide is a man named Dan Scavino. Scavino has worked for Trump for more than 30 years. He met Trump as a teenager when he was a caddy at a golf course Trump frequented. He was Trump's director of social media for the duration of his presidency, making him Trump's longest-serving aide. From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is The Aftermath. Season 2, Episode 3. Hashtag Storm the Capitol. I'm your host, Natalie Orpet. Scavino is an improbable character to act as the social media puppeteer of a mob attacking the Capitol. His early career involved stints and sales at Coca-Cola and as a pharmaceutical rep, then as general manager of the Trump National Golf Club in Westchester. He didn't seem to have much experience in the world of mass communication, until Trump named him director of social media of his campaign in February 2016. Then again, he did have one thing going for him. He was absolutely loyal to Trump. Here's Scavino talking to CNN's Chris Moody in April 2016. Is there anything he could say or do that would lead you to abandon him? No, no, uh, I'm, I'm loyal to the guy. I'm so, I'm so loyal to the guy. Uh, I'm with him through thick and thin, no matter, no matter what happens. And if there's one thing we know about Trump, it's that he values loyalty. So perhaps it's not all that surprising that the man known as a social media mastermind would select someone like Scavino to be at his side. He was the only one other than Trump himself whom Trump trusted to deliver his message. Here's Scavino talking to Lara Trump on her show, The Right View. It was just him and I. It was the two of us. I know. It was the two of us. Big and deal. We were transparent to the yeah. American people. Incredibly. All the time. Whether people liked it or not, uh, we were completely transparent. But puppeteers can't inspire a riot by themselves. They need puppets. They need a stage. And they need the strings to control them. That was where Trump's longtime love of social media became critical. 
Trump understood the value of social media since before he became president. It's a modern form of communication. There should be nothing you should be ashamed of. It's, it's where it's at. I, I do believe this. I really believe that um, the fact that I have such power in terms of numbers with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., I think it helped me win all of these races where they're spending much more money than I spent. You know, I spent my money, a lot of my money, and I won. I think that social media has more power than the money they spent, and I think maybe to a certain extent I proved that. And he also understood the value of Dan Scavino. And I think Hillary had 28 people and I had Dan. (laughs) So when the committee determined that social media was a key factor in what happened on January 6th, it wasn't surprising when it zeroed in on Scavino. And it wasn't surprising when he appeared in their final report. He helped spread the big lie over social media, the committee said. He used social media to recruit supporters to come to Washington on January 6th. And because he tracked social media on behalf of Trump, he may have had advance warning about the potential for violence that day. The story of social media's role in January 6th is actually several stories. It's the story of the puppeteers, like Trump and Scavino, who called out the crowd. It's the story of the puppets, the many thousands of people, like heirs, who found themselves radicalized and doing the president's bidding. And it's the story of the strings, the platforms themselves, the social media companies, which Trump supporters used to organize and call for violence, and which were unable or unwilling to stop them. And we were primarily tasked with looking at the way in which uh, extremist mobilization contributed to the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, as well as the ways in which social media platforms and social media in general contributed to the attack. That's Jacob Glick, a former investigative counsel for the January 6th committee, who worked on the investigation of social media. So we started off with sort of this bare bones chronology, you know, when did you first become involved in these groups? When did you first decide to go to January 6th? How did you get to January 6th? And in the course of that asking about that bare bones chronology, we built out a much more uh, ultimately disturbing story uh, of mobilization. Social media was important for a long time before January 6th. It's where the big lie took hold and spread. Before that, it's where Trump began decrying the supposedly rigged election before the election even happened. Actually, before the 2016 election even happened. Then, after the election, it became a kind of hub of conspiracy theorizing about the so-called steal. But as the January 6th committee found, the fact that a lot of people were involved doesn't mean it was some kind of organic movement. This is Dean Jackson, another member of the January 6th committee's team focused on social media. There's this idea maybe that it was a grassroots movement, but grassroots movements are often started by quite prominent organizers. Uh, And that was certainly the case for The Big Lie. Um, The first Facebook groups around Stop the Steal emerged very quickly after Election Day and were owned by quite prominent activists. But all of this is happening and percolating at the same time as elected officials and quite powerful people in government are also making similar claims and taking them to court. And so there's a parallel sort of online and offline development of all, all of these claims. 
Think of the social media environment as a system that filters a very large group of people into those who are more serious about action. There's a sort of funnel. I think there's a funnel shaped to online radicalism. The top of the funnel were sites like Facebook or Twitter. These are your, your big public forums, right? And so at the top, you have the sort of public messaging structure. And then there are these intermediate layers for people who are sort of more and more passionate about this topic and maybe more and more likely to take action or serve as, as mobilizers. And then um, on sometimes quite private channels, there's actual planning that occurs. As January 6th showed, there can be a lot of movement through the funnel. People who had been passive, regular Trump supporters, just scrolling Facebook or Twitter, were pulled onto alternative forums where rhetoric was more extreme. How? Sometimes it was literally through coaxing they saw on the regular platforms. That's also a place where you can advertise, you know, come on over to the Donald.win, which used to be the Donald subreddit before it was kicked off. Come find us on Parler, the conservative social network that won't censor you. Come find us on Gab. Um, if you really want to get into this, you know, it, it sort of be in the nerve center, you can go to 8chan or you can join a private Discord channel or find us on Telegram. But it wasn't just that the mainstream social media users were going to these alternate platforms. Those platforms, that is, the messages they hosted, were also coming to them. It had been building for years. Even during the 2016 campaign, regular Facebook or Twitter users were seeing reposted content that had originated on the more extreme sites. Content like the meme showing a photograph of Hillary Clinton next to a Star of David, emblazoned with the words, most corrupt candidate ever. The meme had originated on an anti-Semitic message board, but hit the mainstream when it was reposted by Dan Scavino on Trump's Twitter and Facebook accounts. The presumptive GOP nominee pushes back against charges from the Clinton campaign that he tweeted an anti-Semitic image. Over the weekend, Trump sent out a tweet labeling Clinton corrupt next to a shape resembling the Star of David. Now, the Trump camp denied any wrongdoing, saying that the image was modeled after a sheriff's badge, but deleted it nonetheless and put out a new tweet bearing a circle instead. Even after that post inspired a dramatic backlash and was ultimately taken down, Scavino continued to repost this kind of content throughout the Trump presidency. According to public reporting, he actually mined far-right platforms like Parler and the Donald.Win to find content to post on Trump's mainstream accounts, accounts that had millions and millions of followers. The result was a kind of feedback loop facilitated by people like Scavino between committed anti-government violent extremists and people who were, until January 6th, just regular people who supported Trump. So Trump talked and tweeted. Instigators heard, amplified, and planned things. The most famous example of this took place at a debate with Biden, when Trump said, boys, stand back and stand by. The January 6th committee ended up focusing on this statement as well. After he made this comment, Enrique Terrio, then chairman of the Proud Boys, said on Parler, standing by, sir. During our investigation, we learned that this comment during the presidential debate actually led to an increase in membership from the Proud Boys. Would you say that Proud Boys numbers increased after the stand back, stand by comment? 
Exponentially. I'd say triple, probably. So by the time the campaign ended with Trump's loss, an online crowd had already amassed. With extremists leading the way, the post-election period became highly combustible. The rhetoric on social media evolved from the big lie generally to stop the steal in particular. People got progressively angrier, and the calls for action grew ever stronger. And then, with Trump's Will Be Wild tweet, some people started organizing. As Liz Cheney put it, This tweet initiated a chain of events. The tweet led to the planning for what occurred on January 6th, including by the Proud Boys, who ultimately led the invasion of the Capitol and the violence on that day. The committee's investigators actually learned a lot about how this played out on social media. As committee staffer Jacob Glick explains. We had a briefing with Discord, which is a smaller social media platform that had previous entanglements with white supremacist mobilization. Um, And so this briefing was publicly released, the briefing document. And they have this story that is haunting to me that they had to shut down a, a server that was full of President Trump supporters hours after the president's tweet, because there were immediately posts of coordination. Here's how we're going to carpool from this state to DC. Do we bring weapons? Like tactical discussions that were happening within hours of the president's call to action. It was incontrovertible to us that President Trump was responsible for the violence on that day, for making it possible. It's all part of a bigger picture, though. Even with its expanded membership, the Proud Boys couldn't have pulled off January 6th on their own, even if they had teamed up with other extremist organizations. But that same will-be-wild tweet reached millions of people, many of whom were already angry and already primed for some kind of action, even if they never imagined it would end up looking like January 6th. Well, so the January 6th committee staffers concluded in their report that um, Donald Trump's tweet on December 19th, when he said, be there, be wild, in reference to January 6th, was actually a transformative moment across the internet. So not only did it rile people up on Twitter, it really had effects on other platforms. And so what this report really showed was how these social networks can act as a megaphone for these extreme views and help amplify them. The effect of all this activity, and its connection to Trump himself, was not subtle. Around the country, people were watching and getting scared. Here's Georgia election official Gabriel Sterling on December 1st, 2020. Mr. President, stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. And here's former White House aide Olivia Troy speaking on MSNBC on December 28th. Well, you know, I, I am actually very concerned that there will be violence on January 6th because the president himself is encouraging it. This is what he does. He tweets, he incites it, he gets his followers and supporters to behave in this manner. And these people think that they're being patriotic because they are supporting Donald Trump. But Trump didn't stop. On December 26th, Trump or Scavino, we don't know which one, tweeted from Trump's account. The Justice Department and the FBI have done nothing about the 2020 presidential election voter fraud. 
the biggest scam in our nation's history, despite overwhelming evidence. They should be ashamed. History will remember. Never give up. See everyone in D.C. on January 6th. The next day, another tweet. See you in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Don't miss it. Information to follow. Then twice on January 1st, more Trump tweets calling on his supporters to come to Washington. Even on January 5th, the day before the attack. That evening, Trump, Scavino, and a few other aides gathered in the Oval Office with open windows, listening to a rally of supporters nearby. A new Trump tweet came out. I hope the Democrats, and even more importantly, the weak and ineffective rhino section of the Republican Party, are looking at the thousands of people pouring into D.C. They won't stand for a landslide election victory to be stolen. In the end, though, it seems that even Scavino thought it had gone too far. After unsuccessfully trying for up to 20 minutes to persuade Trump to release some sort of de-escalating statement that day, Scavino and other aides just left the president alone to watch the violence unfold on television. That is when, according to sources, Trump posted a message on his Twitter account saying that Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. Scavino, the only other person with access to Trump's Twitter account, told both Jack Smith and White House lawyers at the time, quote, I didn't do it, meaning one of the most incendiary, controversial messages of January 6th was all Donald Trump. So even as one of the puppeteers was backing away, the other puppeteer held strong. This brings us to the other major player in the story, the strings the platforms themselves. The platforms, after all, are not a public square. They are owned by private companies. And those private companies have rules, terms of use. They purport to forbid people from inciting violence, like, say, organizing violent activity on their sites. So how were hashtags like Storm the Capitol allowed to become pervasive in the days before January 6th? The January 6th committee's so-called purple team, the team designated to investigate social media, had the same questions. They looked into major social media companies, such as Meta, Twitter, Reddit, and more, to understand their role in the insurrection. One threshold question, did the companies even have the tools necessary to identify and respond to the content that violated their rules? In many cases, the answer was not very confidence-inspiring. As Dean Jackson explains. Yeah, at Twitter it's interesting um, because it's actually much less, I think, technically robust than people assume. Um, We talked to Twitter staffers who sort of described the back end of the system as being held together with string and chewing gum. When they would take notes, for example, on if an account violates a policy and receives a strike, right? So many strikes in, you're out. You would think that there would be some system for tracking with strikes other than a notepad file where someone enters in plain text. But we were told that that's how they do it, that they they keep track of these things in text. The situation was different at Facebook. Facebook had very sophisticated machine learning tools to help sort of classify and surface content they thought might be either violative or otherwise disturbing to their user base. And they had, I think, a much more sophisticated range of ways to respond to that content and its distribution. 
but it wasn't enough. These algorithms are not so accurate. They're not as powerful, maybe, as Facebook publicly claims and as, as the public assumes. The Purple team also investigated the choices social media companies made in running their platforms. That is, their policies for moderating content. The Purple team was interested in how these companies were thinking about the policies they were going to use to prevent their services from being weaponized against the election. And the conversations they had, whether or not they seemed to be taking threats seriously, what they knew when about the the potential risk of violence, what types of warnings they received internally and externally. And then, of course, the decisions they made in the the crucial period between uh, Election Day and January 6th. But the social media companies were paralyzed in the run-up to January 6th. At Twitter, leadership refused to implement a policy forbidding coded incitement to violence, even in the face of repeated warnings from its employees. Here's Kat Zakruski, a reporter at The Washington Post. The tech companies actually gave former President Trump special treatment, especially Twitter. Former employees testified to the committee that he really did not have to play by Twitter's rules, and they couldn't even use the internal content moderation tools that they used to monitor other accounts to track his tweets. At Facebook, they allowed a small group of extremists to create hundreds of Stop the Steal Facebook groups by evading its controls, including by using fake accounts to reconstitute groups as soon as they were taken down. They let some groups stay up, despite knowing they had ties to militias and other violent actors. As it turned out, those groups were crucial in moving online rhetoric into reality. They planned and promoted Stop the Steal events that brought real people together in states like California, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Florida. At Reddit, they took months to quarantine and finally shut down a subreddit called The Donald, whose users had called for militias to take up arms in response to COVID-19 lockdowns and discussed potential violence against government officials. And during the months-long debate, Reddit allowed users to freely advertise a new alternative forum the Donald.win, an openly extremist website that proclaimed itself a moderation-free zone. The Donald.win ultimately became a key forum for planning January 6th. As the committee later wrote, users discussed occupying the U.S. Capitol, cutting off access to tunnels, what weapons to bring, and even how to build a hangman's gallows. Three days after the attack, this post. We need to organize our militia. Wars are won with guns. And when they silence your commander-in-chief, you are in a war. January 6th committee investigators found that all of these companies had one thing in common. Leadership was hesitant to do anything that would subject them to accusations of anti-conservative bias. I think there's an enormous amount of political pressure on social media companies to not appear partisan. This is a theme that came up in our depositions of social media employees, that they were worried about what it would look like to take action against Donald Trump and have Donald Trump call them out for that action, particularly for Twitter, where Donald Trump was Twitter's biggest attraction. It wasn't just about Trump, though. Social media companies were accused of treating all conservatives unfairly. Many conservatives have not even realized that with our base across the country, this is probably a top three issue 
they cannot discriminate the way they have so flagrantly against conservatives and anyone on our side. And the criticism had an impact. For instance, one former Facebook employee told January 6th committee investigators that the company was reluctant to enforce moderation policies in fear of scrutiny from those on the right. As Jacob Glick explains, He told us that basically to have treated the Stop the Steal movement as something that should be taken down, like even though it had a lot of connections to militia groups and there were violent, there was violent content on some of these groups, you couldn't act against it because that would have removed a significant portion of conservative commentary on Facebook. Um, and so I think that dynamic, which is admittedly a very, very disturbing and difficult dynamic to navigate for the country, for these companies, um, became an excuse to basically throw up their hands and say, we're not going to get involved in this. And if the Republican Party is going to endorse this. The result was that Trump and Scavino were able to bring a radicalized crowd to the ellipse, primed for violence. And key groups were able to isolate and instruct believers and weaponize the crowd. As one anonymous whistleblower later told the committee, What was your, your gut feeling on the night of January 5th? For months I had been begging and anticipating and attempting to raise the reality that if nothing, if we made no intervention into what I saw occurring, people were going to die. And on January 5th, I realized no intervention was coming. Uh, And even as as hard as I had tried to create one uh, or implement one, we were at the winds and the mercy of a violent crowd that was locked and loaded. The story of accountability for the social media environment that contributed to January 6th is almost entirely a story of failure. Sure, a great many people like Stephen Ayers have been held accountable for their conduct on the ground. Conduct spurred, in part, by that toxic ecosystem. So, I mean, it definitely it, it changed my life, you know, uh, and not for the good. Definitely not for the, you know, for the better. Um, but go up the chain to the people urging action, even violent action, on social media, and the picture changes dramatically. The reason is the First Amendment. Tweeting and sharing noxious memes and false information is, after all, just free speech. So is encouraging people to show up in Washington for a protest. So even is encouraging violence, at least if the threat of lawless action isn't imminent. So a sustained social media campaign like the one Trump and Scavino engaged in is protected by the Constitution. They can't be prosecuted for it. As for the social media companies, they won't be prosecuted either. It isn't a crime to fail to prevent incitement to violence on their platforms. In fact, that failure doesn't even put them at risk of civil liability. A law known as Section 230 will make sure they are not held accountable for what users say on their platforms. Of course, the January 6th committee's hearings and report were their own form of accountability. They spotlighted the destructive influence of social media 
they named and shamed the worst offenders, including Scavino, and the platforms that had failed to stop the abuse. They put together a powerful narrative that made social media a central villain. But as it turns out, the narrative could only scratch the surface. It all started in October 2021, when the January 6th committee served Scavino with a subpoena demanding documents and testimony. Scavino's lawyer asked for an extension, and then another, and then another. But even after the committee granted six separate extensions, Scavino refused to produce a single document or appear for a deposition. So they held him in contempt of Congress and referred him to the Justice Department for criminal charges. The Justice Department is saying, based on the individual facts and circumstances of their alleged contempt, my office will not be initiating prosecutions for criminal contempt as requested in the referral against Messrs. Meadows, that's uh, the, the former chief of staff, and Scavino. Losing Scavino as a witness was a serious deficiency, as committee member Adam Kinzinger explains. Dan Scavino was with the president on January 5th and 6th. He spoke with Trump by phone several times on January 6th and was with the president as many urged him to help stop the violence at the Capitol. So Dan Scavino could shed light on what then-President Trump thought would happen on January 6th, especially the potential for violence. Did the president know that the rally could turn violent? That his rhetoric on the ellipse could send an angry mob to storm the Capitol? That what, on the evening of January 5th, President Trump called a fired-up crowd might take it literally when, the next morning, he told them to fight hard? That he was pouring fuel on the flames? Dan Scavino was there, so if he were willing to do his duty as a citizen, he could tell us a lot about that. But instead, he's chosen to stiff-arm the American people. And what about the social media companies? Initially, the committee sent records and interview requests— to 15 companies in August 2021. For five months, they didn't respond. So in January 2022, the committee followed up with subpoenas to Alphabet, Meta, Reddit, and Twitter, demanding information about misinformation and domestic violent extremism on their platforms, and also about the company's content moderation policies. The January 6th Select Committee has subpoenaed multiple social media companies YouTube, Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook for information regarding the January 6th Capitol riot. The committee is demanding records relating to what they say is the spread of information, efforts to overturn the 2020 election, domestic violent extremism, and foreign influence in the 2020 election. For the most part, the companies did not comply. Twitter, in particular, fought back claiming that the committee's request for its employees' internal communications was a violation of their First Amendment rights. Here's committee staffer and Purple Team member Dean Jackson. The companies all had sort of different legal strategies for navigating the investigation, and Twitter's was to say, actually, being investigated like this introduces a chilling effect to our First Amendment right to moderate content on our website. And the committee, faced with this kind of resistance and a ticking clock, backed down. Despite precedent established in previous lawsuits, the committee decided not to pursue the subpoena in court. But failing to secure the social media company's cooperation 
wasn't as dire as it may have seemed. Because the committee soon heard from several anonymous whistleblowers. As committee staffer Jacob Glick explained, We deposed several Twitter whistleblowers who were really able to provide us with a a blow-by-blow inside look at how Twitter's inaction helped to enable uh, the spread of some of the really dangerous misinformation and disinformation, rather, that, that sprung up from President Trump and his allies in the wake of the election. And the whistleblowers had a lot to say. Let's turn now to Congress, where a cybersecurity expert who was fired by Twitter earlier this year gave explosive testimony on Capitol Hill today, saying the social media platform had a suspected Chinese spy on its payroll. Twitter's former security chief, Peter Zadko, today claimed the company's cybersecurity system is in shambles. They don't know what data they have, where it lives, or where it came from, and so, unsurprisingly, they can't protect it. It's not far-fetched to say that employee inside the company could take over the accounts of all of the senators in this room. This testimony, however, marked the last time the January 6th committee would squarely focus on the failure of social media companies. After a year and a half of investigative work, the committee released its 845-page final report on December 22, 2022. The report covered the big lie, It covered Trump's attempts to overturn state election results. It covered the fake electors scheme, the pressure campaign on Pence, and much more. It even talked about Trump's use of social media to rile up the crowd at the ellipse, and then his refusal to use social media to call them off after they attacked the Capitol. One thing the report barely touched, however, was the impact of social media companies. The reason for glossing over the company's role, at least according to some staffers on the committee, was Vice Chair Liz Cheney. A few weeks before the release of the final report, media outlets reported tension between committee members and staffers about how to frame their findings. The Washington Post, for example, reported that 15 committee staffers were frustrated with Cheney for her insistence that the report focus primarily on Trump. They said that so singular a focus diluted key findings from the purple team about social media and from the blue team about law enforcement failures in the lead-up to the attack. Jacob Glick explains that the committee ultimately focused its story on Trump so that it would be straightforward and therefore easily interpreted by the American public. I quite honestly believe that everyone on the committee was aligned in wanting to tell a story that was really understandable to the broadest number of Americans and really to the world. And we understood that there were a lot of different elements of the story at play. This is a story that's about a far-reaching attempt to subvert American democracy and a broader authoritarian movement that has fueled that scheme. And it was impossible to tell every piece of that story. So the committee's search for accountability was hamstrung by self-imposed limits. But a few weeks after it issued its final report and disbanded along with the end of the 117th Congress, a new source of accountability appeared on the scene. The report in the Washington Post highlights stunning details uncovered by the January 6th 
House Committee on how social media companies fail to address online extremism and calls for violence leading up to the attack on the Capitol. The evidence compiled by the committee, committee was written up in a 122-page memo. The memo was essentially a blow-by-blow explanation of how, what, and why various social media companies contributed to the January 6th attack. Twitter doesn't hold Donald Trump accountable despite all of the yammering you've heard, which is just such nonsense. They were scared to cross Donald Trump. Now, here's my question. Why was the January 6th committee scared to cross these powerful social media companies? I don't know. It seems very weird that the people on the Hill are scared of the of, of the tech companies and the tech companies are scared of people on the Hill, in particular, uh, all politicians. And it's just this weird dynamic where that, that's what allowed Trump to get away with all the different things that he, he got away with. There was one more group that took steps toward accountability. It began only days after January 6th. After failing to address disinformation and other dangerous content on their platforms, social media companies sprang into action. Facebook made the first move. On January 7th, it announced that it was suspending Trump's account. Former President Donald Trump getting suspended from Facebook and Instagram for two years. Next up was Twitter, Trump's platform of choice. Twitter announced on January 8th that it was permanently banning him. Tonight, a deafening silence from the president's Twitter account in his waning days as commander-in-chief. Twitter, run by CEO Jack Dorsey, saying after close review of the president's recent tweets, it banned him due to the risk of further incitement of violence. In addition to deplatforming Trump, Twitter also updated its civic integrity policy. The new policy would better counter misleading and false information surrounding the 2020 election information that had served as the basis for incitement to violence. Twitter began prohibiting its users from replying to, retweeting, or even liking posts that were found to violate the company's civic integrity policy. And it didn't stop there. In the days after the attack, Twitter permanently suspended thousands of other accounts, including 70,000 accounts associated with QAnon, as well as Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn. After rioters pushed their way into the Capitol on January 6th to violently block the Electoral College certification, Twitter now tells CBS News the social media platform purged more than 150,000 accounts associated with QAnon. But it wouldn't last. I think particularly in the case of Twitter, there's been a huge rollback of some of those emergency measures. Twitter was unwilling to keep in place sort of this emergency measure to remove content under a coded incitement to violence policy. The coded incitement to violence policy was supposed to fill gaps of existing policies on explicit violence, which covered statements such as, I'm going to, or I want to, commit violence. The policy allowed Twitter to detect and moderate statements that included key words and phrases that weren't facially incitement, but could be in context, such as, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. And Twitter refused, basically refused until the day of January 6th, when they haphazardly put it in place. And then they obviously removed President Trump when they saw another attack kind of being contemplated on Twitter after January 6th. But then they kind of went back to normal. 
and they refuse to keep this more cogent, aggressive content moderation policy in place. Then in 2023, the rollback became a rush to the opposite pole, especially after Twitter was purchased by Elon Musk. One of his first action items allowed Donald Trump back onto the platform. For years, Twitter has battled hate speech and disinformation. Today, a raging debate over what Twitter is now and will soon become. This is a company that's been held hostage by its woke employees, held hostage by its woke users. I don't think this is about politics. I think this is about safety. I really do. I think people like Ayatollah Khamenei shouldn't be on when they threaten Jews because people end up getting hurt. Musk calls himself a free speech absolutist, arguing for fewer restrictions and lifting the ban on former President Trump, accused of encouraging violent acts. Musk didn't stop there. In addition to allowing Trump back on Twitter, he laid off approximately 80% of the company's trust and safety engineers, including the whole content moderation team. It left Twitter even more unregulated than before January 6th. What's more, in September 2023, just as the United States began gearing up for the 2024 elections, Musk, who also renamed the platform X, eliminated what was Twitter's election integrity team. Elon Musk replied to a post that reported X had cut half of its election team, including the head of the department. Musk said, quote, oh, you mean the election integrity team that was undermining election integrity? Yeah, they're gone. And in the meantime, he reinstated thousands of previously banned accounts under a so-called amnesty policy. The ADL Center for Tech and Society pulled 500,000 tweets mentioning Jew or Judaism from the two weeks before and after Musk's takeover last year. After analyzing those posts, they found a 60% increase in the number of anti-Semitic posts in the two weeks after Musk bought the site. Musk has since threatened to sue the ADL for defamation. The CCDH, a nonprofit that tracks hate speech, reported a 202% increase in the amount of tweets mentioning the N-word. 202%. Musk's company is currently suing the CCDH, claiming that they misused Twitter data to conduct a, quote, scare campaign. As for Meta, platform executives also made the decision to ban Trump's account after January 6th. And his account wasn't the only one. That's because of a unique feature on Facebook, called Facebook Groups. It's a feature that allows people with common interests to connect. Typically, that means gardening enthusiasts, or sports fans, or movie lovers. But in 2020, people wanted to connect over their shared belief that the election had been stolen. Before long, they were coalescing into groups called Stop the Steal. As it turned out, some of those groups became crucial in planning the January 6th Capitol attack. But it wasn't until after January 6th that Facebook took action against them. Here's Dean Jackson. Yeah, they took pretty quick action in the aftermath. The most, most dramatically by banning the president, Facebook had somehow identified a large number of accounts that it put into sort of like read-only status. They were, I think, affiliated and so they just sort of froze them. They didn't necessarily ban them, but they they locked it down, right? You know, there was really this effort to like prevent people from organizing so quickly and to sort of lock down the people who were maybe most likely to be spreading this content. Purple Team investigators found that Facebook, as compared to other platforms they looked into, 
actually had better policies in place to address the spread of disinformation on the platform. For Facebook, you know, I think they continue to have better policies around things like dangerous organizations, things like terrorist groups or hate groups who are not allowed to operate on their platform. They do have these systems in place and these capabilities to lower the temperature of discourse on their platform should they choose. But it's no panacea. After all, its decision to block Trump's account in the days after the January 6th attack wasn't based on his membership in a hate group or a terrorist organization. It was because he had condoned the violence at the Capitol, and Facebook feared he would continue to use its platform to undermine the peaceful transition of power. Trump's ban lasted for two years. Then, in January 2023, his accounts were reinstated. But it wasn't because Meta had fixed all the problems that had caused Trump to be banned in the first place. As Jacob Glick explains, Meta let President Trump back on the platform, but in letting him back on the platform, still has not promulgated, to my knowledge, a coherent policy on election delegitimization. So basically, they don't have a policy about attacking the results of elections after they occur. They have a policy on election delegitimization. In other words, Meta's policy on elections addressed what had happened before the November election. Things like voter intimidation or spreading disinformation about when to vote. But obviously that wasn't the problem last time. The problem was attacking the results after they occurred. So these companies had a moment where they were like, oh no, this is a huge problem and we need to address political violence that has a nexus to political leaders in the United States of America in a way that we would address in other parts of the world. But that's gone. And so I'm really worried about what happens in 2024 if they're looking for very specific January 6th-like signals about a large-scale mobilization, but they're not aggressively policing sort of calls to violence that are spread throughout the country and could lead to a lot of disruption and potentially worse. Meta's inaction is not the only factor contributing to concerns about election disinformation. Five weeks before the January 6th attack at the Capitol, Facebook made the decision to disband its civic integrity team, which had been formed to address election misinformation and the spread of violent content. The story of Samit Chakrabarty, who was head of integrity at Facebook and left the company, you know, his team was broken up or re restructured. Facebook will push back the bristle if you say that the team was dissolved, but restructured um, in ways that diluted its power and influence. As a result, many of Meta's integrity staff ended up leaving the company. Meta made no attempt to retain these workers, or even rehabilitate the civic integrity team or something like it. He led a really interesting team with a lot of bright engineers and, and had a lot of, I think, difficult conversations with executives. So yeah, there, there are people who sort of were kind of in the, in the fight in a way that have come out of it either leaving the industry entirely feeling like maybe their efforts failed, or who have been punished now by political actors for the steps that they did take. The platforms were reversing the steps they had taken to address Trump in the big lie, even as it kept spreading. They were not going to hold themselves accountable for the harm their users had created, even amidst warnings that it could happen again. So current and former employees began to take matters into their own hands. One of these former employees was Francis Haugen. Haugen worked on Facebook's civic integrity team. 
she became known as the Facebook whistleblower. She made media appearances to warn of the company's dangerous practices when it came to policing, or failing to police, harmful content on the platform. In her first public appearance on 60 Minutes, she explained why she felt the need to come forward, rather than just move on from the company like so many of her colleagues. They told us, we're dissolving civic integrity. Like, they basically said, oh, good, we we made it through the election. There wasn't riots. We can get rid of civic integrity now. Fast forward a couple months, we got the insurrection. And when they got rid of civic integrity, it was the moment where I was like, I don't trust that they're willing to actually invest what needs to be invested to keep Facebook from being dangerous. She elaborated. The thing I saw at Facebook over and over again was there were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making more money. The January 6th committee largely relied on the testimony of whistleblowers to get a fuller understanding of what was going on behind the scenes between the election and January 6th. One of those whistleblowers was Anika Collier-Navroli. Her testimony was featured in the committee's hearings, but her voice was modified to protect her identity. In January 2023, she spoke out publicly about Twitter's inaction, and she criticized the January 6th committee's decision to downplay the role played by social media companies in the January 6th attack. I think it's really important for these findings from the committee about the roles that social media played within January 6th come to light. Social media companies are mentioned hundreds of times within the final report. However, their role or their responsibility within that day and the events of that day and the violence that occurred has not been fully laid out. But whistleblowers could really only do just that, blow the whistle. It was now up to Congress to take action and deliver accountability for these companies. According to Navroli, the January 6th committee did not do enough, and the rest of Congress only sort of picked up the torch. Congress began with hearings and called on the leaders of these massive tech companies to answer for the harms caused by their platforms. On March 25, 2021, the House Committee on Energy and Commerce held a hearing entitled Disinformation Nation, Social Media's Role in Promoting Extremism and Misinformation. Witnesses included the CEOs of Facebook, Google, and Twitter. At the hearing, the CEOs touted all of their efforts to regulate misinformation about the 2020 election. Here's Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook. We did our part to secure the integrity of the election. And then, on January 6th, President Trump gave a speech rejecting the results and calling on people to fight. The reality is our country is deeply divided right now, and that isn't something that tech companies alone can fix. Soon after, Congress held another hearing to hear testimony from more social media executives about the dangers of their platforms. Do you support changes in Section 230 to impose liability? There absolutely can and should be changes, um, but again, in a way that would allow companies like ours that are good actors, that are aggressively um, moderating our platform in a way that we think is responsible um, to be able to continue to do so. And another... We live in a world where an unprecedented number of people consume information from social networks. 
viral content and misinformation can propagate on these platforms on a scale that's unseen in human history. Regulators must understand companies' incentives, culture, and processes to appreciate how unlikely voluntary reform is. But even after all the splashy hearings, Congress failed to pass any substantial legislation to address any of the issues they had spent three years talking about. There are a lot of reasons for that. Congress usually fails to get things done, after all. Tech companies are powerful actors. And the problem is wrapped up in a hundred other problems that come up when trying to figure out how to regulate social media. Teen depression, anxiety, and eating disorders. But also privacy concerns and foreign ownership of companies like TikTok. But the central reason Congress has failed to regulate social media platforms is that members do not agree about what the problem is. Many Republican lawmakers tend to regard the problem not as the promulgation of election lies, but as censorship of conservative content. Democrats, on the other hand, are more likely to support some forms of content moderation, while also being wary of giving companies too much discretion, which could lead to even more harm. In the absence of congressional action, multiple states have contemplated doing something. Since the January 6th attack, state legislators have introduced more than 100 bills to regulate how tech companies moderate users' content, three of which have actually been signed into law. But like Congress, the states split along party lines when it comes to what regulation of these companies actually means and the goals they want to accomplish. In New York, a traditionally democratic state, Governor Kathy Hochul signed a bill requiring social media platforms to make it possible for users to report hate speech in a publicly accessible way. According to the law, social media companies are required to directly respond to any of their users that report hate speech and could face fines of up to $1,000 if they fail to comply. Here's Hochul on the legislation. We're also making the digital world safer by identifying credible online threats. And we're also calling out social media companies who have failed their responsibility to create a safe public square and creating resources and toolkits for parents and schools alike. Soon after it was passed, though, the law was challenged by operators of online platforms. They argued that the law violated their First Amendment rights. They claimed the law set out to silence unfavorable but constitutionally protected expression. The bill has been blocked from going into effect until a final decision is made. Two other laws were also being debated on the opposite end of the ideological spectrum. In March 2021, Florida passed a bill banning tech platforms from ousting political candidates. Here's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Silicon Valley is, an- is acting as a council of censors. Um, they cancel people. When mobs come after somebody, they will pull them down. They shadow ban people, which creates partisan echo chambers. And honestly, they are some of the major reasons why this country is divided for, for doing what they're doing. And the worst part about this, Silicon Valley thinks they know better than you. And in September, 
Texas followed suit, passing a law that prohibits platforms from restricting user posts based on their political views. Here's Texas Governor Greg Abbott. You know, one thing that Senator Hughes fights for is Second Amendment rights, uh, the right to life, so many freedoms. Now he's stepping up fighting for the First Amendment rights so that conservative speech will not be canceled in the state of Texas. Social media companies, unsurprisingly, were not fans of this legislation either. So they took Florida and Texas to court. The Supreme Court is set to hear a major case on the two laws in the coming months. So the question remains painfully unanswered. Can anything be done to fix what's broken about social media so that we can prevent a future January 6th? After all, the puppeteers still hold the stage. Uh, I will tell you that I think it's very important that President Trump runs again for president. Right now, my future plans are just being at his side and pushing him along uh, and being with him. So is that it? Is 2024 destined to just be a repeat of 2020? Actually, there may be one last chance to hold someone accountable. Donald Trump himself. He's not being prosecuted for his use of social media per se, but his indictment in Washington, D.C. prominently features his social media activities. And just a few weeks ago, we learned that the special counsel got a big break from a now familiar character. After lengthy court battles, special counsel Jack Smith's investigators have spoken to all of the senior aides who were with Trump at the White House while the Capitol was under attack, including trusted aide Dan Scavino, a man who has known Trump since he was a teenager and worked as his golf caddy. Inside the White House, Scavino ran Trump's Twitter accounts and all social media. The great Dan Scavino, most powerful man in politics. Scavino spent much of January 6th at Trump's side. Sources say Scavino told investigators that Trump sat in the dining room next to the Oval Office as his supporters attacked the Capitol. And then as Scavino and other aides pleaded with Trump to do something to stop the violence, Trump sat in front of the TV, unresponsive, his arms folded. Scavino called Trump's demeanor very unsettling. But where does that leave Dan Scavino? He's right where he said he'd be, at Donald Trump's side, advising on his presidential campaign and, yes, still on social media. The Aftermath is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. I'm your host, Natalie Orpet. Series executive producers are Benjamin Wittes and me. Production and story editing at Goat Rodeo from Max Johnston. Senior producers are Catherine Pompilio of Lawfare and Megan Nadolsky and Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Scripting by me, Catherine Pompilio, and Benjamin Wittes. Additional production assistance from Isabel Kirby McGowan, Jay Venables, Kara Schillen, Anna Hickey, and Caleb Benjamin. Cover art by Ian Enright. To learn more about Lawfare or to support our work, visit our website at lawfaremedia.org.